We're starting a new series today um, on Advent. And usually we try to slow down a little bit at this time of year and focus a little bit. I know we've been in Mark, and so we've had a lot of like Christmassy incarnation, figuring out who Jesus is stuff throughout the last year. But it's important to really slow down and look at uh, a series like this, um, Advent, looking at God with us. Because I really do think when we slow down and reflect, there's so many things that I think over the last year and a half especially have tried to show up to really like dampen any reasons for celebration. You with me on that? There's been a lot of tension, nonstop changes, conflicts, limitations. Life just has not been for sure normal in the ways that many, many of us would have wanted it to be. But I will say at this time of year, it's really important to slow down and not just take stock of those things, but to also look at the so many reasons to celebrate. So many reasons that we can look back on this last year, celebrate in this season of Advent, but then also look forward to next year and really start to see evidence of grace and just fingerprints of God working even in and through disappointment, even in and through limitations, in and through stress and and conflict and tensions in relationships, as if we haven't had any of those this year, right? But that God is actually still at work very much in the midst of that. Not not despite those things. It's not that he's absent from those things. But that the God of the Bible, the God of history, the God of the gospel of Jesus is present in and through those things. And sometimes it takes some time to slow down and take a deep breath and find where those things are. Look for those evidences of grace in our life. But I wanted to start with just reflecting on what this season looks like. And ask you, like, what are the things that you actually are looking forward to the most? And don't kind of go to, like, pessimistic, and that's probably not going to happen because Omicron's going to come get me. Which, by the way, sounds like a Decepticon. And it's just like, oh, Omicron, this big robot, right? It's like, it's like no, no, don't, don't jump to, like, more disappointment, right? It's like, what are you actually looking forward to? Even some of the traditions in our family this time of year, what are the sounds and, you know, the amazing crooning voice of buble that you're looking forward to, Right? The sights, the, the tastes, the smells, the family traditions, the, the movies, of course, Home Alone and Elf. Or just the much needed rest that you look forward to at this time of year. Reflecting on the past year and looking forward to the next year. It's also important to really pay attention and take stock of some of the disappointments that we've experienced. Because it's in those disappointments that we get to actually see where God might be present through those things as well. Or maybe even misplaced hopes. Where did you put your hope this year that you just saw? It could not bear the weight of my hope. I had misplaced hopes and they disappointed me ultimately. Maybe it was a season of life I was looking forward to or it was a relationship status I was looking forward to getting or it was a certain um, promotion or a certain personal milestone and I, I didn't hit it. We always like make sure that our first Sunday in the new year is like celebrating and mourning the fact that we've already failed on our new year's resolutions. Right, so like by, by like January 6th, you're like, I'm a terrible human being. I've failed at all my disciplines already, right? So that's, that's a long year to have of disappointments, of, of misplaced hopes, right? So what are some of those, just as you reflect? I think it's really important to take inventory of those things as we reflect on Advent. And now for many of us, maybe some of us didn't grow up from a tradition that even spoke about Advent, but Advent is just from the Latin word, which means arrival. Just means coming, the arrival of something or someone. And we see traditions of Advent as early as the fourth century in Christian tradition and Christian history, where there was already kind of certain traditions and reflections and meditations coming about in Advent with candles and fasting and prayer and all sorts of things. But why it was celebrated, it was there to represent the long-awaited arrival of the one who can save. The long anticipation of understanding misplaced hopes, but the one who's gonna come and deliver on the greatest hope that we need, and that is a rescuing, a savior. And in Advent, it's funny, the meaning of Advent is actually in that discomfort and that waiting. It's not in the, oh, open the Advent calendar, let's get this done, like let's put the buble on, let's get the tree up, and let's give gifts to our loved ones. But Advent is actually, the meaning of Advent is in the waiting. That Advent actually puts us in a place of anticipation, not the culmination of that, but thousands and thousands of years of waiting and anticipating God to deliver on what he promised. That's the meaning of Advent. The meaning is actually in the waiting. 
And if we know anything about our culture, are we good at waiting? No. I always love standing in line where I know it's going to be a while and just trying to make an educated guess of who's going to lose it first. And you can usually pin them because they're already kind of like, kind of like doing their thing, like looking at other aisles, like, right? And it's just like, and it's only, it's been literally 28 seconds, right? And if their stuff is not on that, that, that rolling thing on, on the cashier, it's just kind of like, it's been 28 seconds. <laughs> oh, and then they just like, they start getting, and I always love doing it. I'm just kind of waiting. And that's, that's my way to not be that guy. Right, because I'm going to be that guy 28 seconds in, or I'm going to watch who's going to be that guy, right? But we're not good at waiting. And Advent invites us into that anticipation, the slowing down, the actual ceasing, the stopping, and the waiting. It's like Christmas Eve for thousands of years, right? That feeling on Christmas Eve is like, I just can't wait to the morning. This is going to be so great. But when we look at the long scope of redemption and throughout history it's thousands of years of that kind of anticipation of like i just can't wait for the sun to come up and for the morning to come and advent invites us in to kind of go back so that we can move forward through that anticipation there's usually four themes that are celebrated at advent hope love joy and peace there's kind of an unpacking of those four things so we're going to loosely follow that matt fraser is going to be with us next week to preach on love and the incarnation Looking forward to that. But what we got to understand about Advent is that it's actually an anticipation of Christ's arrival. It's not Christ's arrival. It's the anticipation of it that gets us to the significance of his arrival. Now, it's not bad that we celebrate his arrival at this time of year. That's a good thing. We should. But what happens is if we just jump to, oh, yeah, God is with us. This is a big deal. Can't believe Jesus is God in flesh, which is already kind of mind-blowing. That's amazing. But what happens is if we move too quickly to that, we end up skipping over one of the most important aspects that leads us to there. Everything leading up to Jesus' arrival. Thousands of years of history pointing to our need for a rescuer. Arrows all throughout the Old Testament and across history of the need for the arrival of a savior. So Advent invites us to put ourselves in Israel's sandals. Like to actually walk around in their dusty-footed sandals and sit in the tension of promises. Century after century, living in light of God's promise that he himself, he wouldn't send somebody, that he himself would step into human history and change all of human history that he himself would step into history and change what happened at the beginning of history. That's what Advent is about. So we're going to spend some time in different texts over the next four weeks looking at that. Today we're going to be in Matthew's gospel because we just spent so long in Mark, I figured let's switch it up and see what Matthew's saying, right? So in Matthew 1.1, here's how Matthew begins his biography of Jesus, his gospel account of Jesus. He starts and he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And you're like, wow, you're gonna start this story with a genealogy. This is gonna be fun. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we're gonna skip the genealogy, which by the way, you shouldn't skip it. I, I, I think next year I'll preach on the genealogy. I'll just literally preach on it. And you'll be like, why in the world would you do that? Because when you actually go through this genealogy, it is this gorgeous, beautiful mess. And all of you would be like, oh, I feel at home in my family now. Like, we, we keep the fun in dysfunctional, right? And looking at Jesus' genealogy, you'll see it's amazing to see the brokenness, the dysfunction, the disobedience, and the rebellion that actually God decides, I'm going to have a genealogy. I'm going to insert myself into a human genealogy even though I'm God. And it's not going to be a perfect, pristine one. It's going to be a disaster, Genealogy is amazing. So read that this week and allow your hyperlinks to go crazy as you think, as it hyperlinks you back to stories of old and, and different covenant promises. It's amazing. But we're going to skip it and see what Matthew does at the end of this so that we understand the why of the genealogy. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And then from David to the exile in Babylon, there was 14 generations. And then from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now before we unpack what in the world Matthew's doing there, we have to understand that it's so significant that Matthew starts his Christmas story with a genealogy. He doesn't start it with stars, doesn't start it with shepherds, 
wise men, gifts, frankincense and myrrh. He doesn't start with any of that stuff. He starts with a genealogy. 47 names appear here before the name of Jesus. Why? What is Matthew doing here? Well, I think the why is found in us understanding that the Christmas story isn't about a birth. The Christmas story is about an arrival. That the Christmas message is the coming of the long-expected Savior. And he doesn't start with like, once upon a time, and I'm going to tell you a fairy tale. Or in a galaxy far, far away, right? He doesn't do that. He starts in real traceable historical events. So this is really important about the Christian message. That we're not just pulling things out and being like, wouldn't it be nice if we had a myth about how everything happened? It's like, no, this isn't a myth. These are real names. These are real historical figures and events happening. And all these names mentioned before Jesus are real people. So this is not a story. It's history. It's not a story. It's history. That's really important. And if you notice the word genealogy there, in Greek, this is mind-blowing, it's the word Genesis. It's the word Genesis. Now, what is Matthew doing? Where is he hyperlinking us, Reach? Right back to the beginning. Now, why is he using a key word like that? Because it's not even the word for genealogy. So in English, it comes through as genealogy because they want us to understand it's, a, it's actually a tracing of his uh, family tree. But why Matthew is doing this is because he is making the point, a big flashing arrow to his audience, that this is a new beginning, that this is a new creation, that the arrival of God on the scene and the inbreaking of his reign and rule and kingdom will change everything. This is a creative moment. This is a moment of new creation. This is a, a moment of new freedom. This is a moment of new exodus from slavery. This is a new um, power coming to release us from the oppressors. Something new is happening. And then he says, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he takes the son of David and son of Abraham, and he structures the whole genealogy based on those two key names. And why does he do that? Well, David ties Jesus to the royal heritage and his right to the throne as a Davidic king. David was a big deal. We'll talk about that in a second. But with Abraham, he ties the biological heritage, the family heritage, the covenant relationship between God and Israel through the line of Abraham. And then all of the Old Testament follows these two threads of the son of David and the son of Abraham. Whoever this is, is gonna come. And we have prophets and priests and kings and nations and people groups that are pointing us to the prophet, the priest and the king who will come, Jesus the Christ. And so Matthew's just taking this all and packing it into one verse for us. Now, what is he doing with these 14, 14, 14 thing? Because wouldn't that be convenient? Like right away, the skeptic in you is not, there's no way there was actually 14 generations, like so neat and tidy. Well, you're right. There's actually not. What's really interesting is he skips four Davidic kings. Their names aren't even there. And he misses eight generations that Luke has in his. And so right away, you look at this genealogy, and the skeptic in us is like, see, the Bible contradicted itself again. Let's just throw it in the garbage. And that's what culture often does, right? You see something that seemingly looks like a contradiction, and you're like, see, it can't be trusted. But here's what Matthew's doing. It's actually far deeper than that and far more amazing. He's doing something very significant. Notice that the 14, 14, 14, there's a total of six sevens in there. Okay, so 14 is made up of two sevens. Okay, just check with me. I'm not good at diagrams or else I would have given you a diagram. Okay, I'll be the diagram. Okay, 14, there's two sevens in that 14. There's a second 14, there's two more sevens. And then there's a third 14 and there's two more sevens for a total of six sevens. And what Matthew is saying is, you generation, the one listening to me, are in the seventh seven. Now what hyperlinks are starting to go off for you? Where are you starting to go as you start thinking, well, I know seven's significant throughout scripture. You're like, okay, days of creation, six, on the seventh, we're resting, and now we're, enter we're invited into the rest of God, which is the point of creation. You're like, okay, cool, I can track with that. Where else do we see seven sevens? Well, throughout the Old Testament, we have this amazing party, this crazy celebration called Jubilee. It's a word where we get jubilation, celebration, excitement. 
which questions like how we worship. We're just like, I'm so excited to be in Jesus. So much jubilee. Lord, it's like, no, no, there's jubilee. Something's happening. We're, we're celebrating. And what, what did jubilee mean? Well, there's lots of significance to this. We don't have time to unpack it in depth. But at the end of seven sets of seven years, it was called the Shemitah. Say Shemitah. You're welcome. Just repeat it over Advent, all right? And at the end of the seven sets of seven years, at the beginning of that last seven, debts were forgiven. Slaves were set free. Laborers were let go of their contracts. Land was rested. You couldn't harvest anymore. You're not going to harvest your land. The land is going to rest. And in the 49th year, at the end of the seventh seven, it was just party time. We're going to enjoy the fruit of the vine. We're going to eat. We're going to party. We're going to celebrate. We're going to celebrate our freedom because God set us free. And that's what Jubilee signifies. And it's a huge party. And Matthew just said, he just structured his whole genealogy to say to his audience, you're the seventh seven. The time has come. Freedom is here. And it's not a freedom that's rooted in harvest calendars and and covenant with Israel. It's a freedom to all Jews, all Gentiles, all people because Jesus the Christ is here. And secondly, something crazy he does here with David. Now there's something in the Old Testament in Hebrew called gematria. Who's heard of gematria before? All right, (laughs) my wife. Because she has to put up with me telling her about it. Now this is, okay, I'm not trying to send you on a Da Vinci code, like unlock Bible codes mission here. That's not what Hebrew gematria is. Hebrew gematria is just the fact that the Hebrew alphabet, there's no numbers. So the Hebrew alphabet doesn't actually have numbers. This is all my seminary education for you, okay? There's no numbers. So what they do is each letter has a numerical value. And then so you make numbers based on letters and you put a whole bunch of letters together. Now what's really wild is that if you do Hebrew gematria with David's name, the three consonants of DVD, because there's also no vowels. Hebrew's tough. If you take DVD, it is 646 for a total of 14. And so Matthew is taking this and he's saying 14 is the code for the Messiah, and he's here. He has come. The Davidic king has come. And we're entering into the year of Jubilee to be freed. 14, 14, 14. And guess who's here? 14 is, right? And he's doing all of this because his original audience knows all of that. So I had to do all that unpacking for us. They would have already got it, right? No problem. They would be like, yes, I, I see what he's doing. Matthew is doing all of this tricky stuff just to say the king is here. And not a Davidic king because we already had David. He looked like he was going to be the one, but he failed us because he was a bit of a goon. Okay, so we couldn't put our trust in him. He didn't deliver us. But we do know that a son of David is coming. And it's not going to be just a king and a son of David. It's going to be the king, God himself. And Matthew's just waving his hands and saying, it's happened. It's happened. He has arrived. He's on the scene. God is here. He is among us that God is actually with us. Now, to understand some of the Old Testament and ancient context of like what a king is, you got to understand it's not just like political, like, oh, you say stuff and the nation does it. Kings, emperors, Caesars, pharaohs, all of those rulers in different nations and cultures ruled representing God. So they ruled under God. So the idea was that the king, actually there was something divine about the kings ruling over the nation that God has granted to them. In Rome, Caesars were called the sons of God. It was a title for Caesar as the incarnation of Zeus. They were called the image of God, right? We, remember we unpacked a lot of this in Mark to see that, that throughout the gospels it's making the point of no, Caesar is not the son of God because the son of God is here, right? So very strong kind of pushback on that. And through the, the Old Testament, there's a long line of kings, right? So usually in your Bible reading by like May, you're hitting like Chronicles and Kings and you're like, what in the world? Like why would I read over and over and over again of like this guy took over and he was a goof, this guy, he was all right. This guy was a disaster. And this guy was all right. And this, right? And you see this like crazy line of kings throughout the Old Testament. Some of them are good and most of them are terrible. So you're kind of like, well, the kings suck. So like, who's gonna save us? Who's gonna actually rescue us? That's basically the Old Testament summarized for you. You're welcome. 
right? But you see this roller coaster of like, yeah, it's going to be him. It's going to be, oh, <laughs> like, yeah, oh, right? So there's this constant kind of ebbing and flowing of disappoint, disappointment and hope and, and di- dissipating hope, right? All throughout the Old Testament. And Matthew's coming and saying, not this time. Not this time. Something new is happening. There's a jubilee happening. There's an inbreaking of freedom that we have never seen before. There's an inbreaking of a ruler who is not going to disappoint us. And it's not just God ruling through kings, it's God coming as king. And that's what Matthew is doing here, all in a genealogy. And when you go back and you kind of look, especially at David, there's a wild promise about the line of David. Not David himself, but those who would come after David. In 2 Samuel, we can read about that in chapter 7, but it says, I will raise up your offspring after you. So it's not going to be about you, David, but I'm going, to rule, I'm going to raise up offspring after you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. You're like, oh, that sounds like a forever king. What, is this going to be like an eternal king? He's going to live forever? Like, I don't understand. So you've got to put yourself back there and be like, what was that promise about? And Matthew's taking all of that and saying it's about this. It's about this right here. That, that this, this, rather than rule as un, an image of God, like one option of many, he will come as the image of God. Not as a son of God with an earthly throne, but the son of God with a forever throne. And Matthew's doing all of this, the preaching of his genealogy. It's amazing. So, what is the point of the genealogy? Well, we're gonna skip forward. Again, we're so familiar with the Christmas story. I'm not going to read it through. You're like, oh, yeah, Mary. And it's like, oops, scandalous. Oopsie, I'm pregnant. Joseph's like, oh, dang, girl. Right? And so they gotta, we're not going to do all that part, okay? So right here, verse 20, 21 through 25, Joseph trying to figure this out. Be like, I don't know what to do. I guess I'll just divorce her. Okay? And here's what happens. She will bear. So this is, this is the angel, the Lord appearing to, to Joseph, being like, all right, man, let's, let's sort this out. Your wife, okay, to be, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this has taken place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, points him backwards, to say, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up from his dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Now, here's the point of this text right here. Jesus' birth, his arrival on the scene was surprising the way it happened, but it was not a surprise. That's Matthew's point. It was surprising because it's quite scandalous. And culturally, there's all sorts of stuff in that story that's like, wow, this is a scandalous way to like enter the scene and be like, I'm God, right? Poor, engaged, teenage mom, oops, I'm pregnant, which according to the Old Testament, death, capital punishment for that one. And Joseph's like, no, nah, I kind of like her. So I'm not gonna like divorce her publicly. We'll just do this quietly and let her kind of get on, get on about her business, right? The angel shows up and goes, no, 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 I'm doing this. I'm doing this. It's crazy. And he points back to one prophecy, but there are over 300 prophecies, promises that speak of the coming Messiah. The Messiah's birthplace, his life, how he's gonna live, where he's gonna live, his teaching, what he's gonna say, what he's gonna claim about himself, the rejection that he will face, the substitutionary death, resurrection, and ascension, and return as eternal rule as king. It's all there, all of it. So at the time of this happening, Israel had that whole backdrop. They had the playbook. They knew what they were looking for because for centuries they have been waiting. They've been waiting. They've seen hints and shadows everywhere of the coming Messiah. They have heard promises of hope over and over and over again. And the hope of Yahweh will save is this refrain that just rings across history as it's carried throughout the old covenant by prophets and priests and kings, just keeping Israel focused on this this chorus that's being sung across history that Yahweh saves. No other God saves, but Yahweh, he saves and he will save. And year after year, generation after generation, century after century, God reminds his people of his promise to rescue and redeem. We need to hear this because I think you need to understand, especially today, God is not slow to fulfill his promises. I mean, it's slow to us, right? You're kind of like, God, I don't know. 
Like, I've been here 36 years. I think you probably could have done a better job getting some stuff done for me. You know what I'm saying? But, but God's not slow to fulfill his promises. He's always on time. Always on time. That he did this exactly when he did it intentionally. I always wonder, I'm like, why, did, why didn't Jesus come now? Because that would have been legit. Like, get on YouTube and like, just put it out there to the world. I'm the Messiah. You'd be like, whoa, viral, right? Why did he do it then in that culture at that time of history? Well, because that's exactly when he planned on doing it. So you have to understand that God in our life, as we trust him, as we move towards faith and kind of fumble towards him, trying to figure out how to trust him and what it looks like, he might not do what we want him to do when we want him to do it, but he is always on time. Always. God has always used trustful waiting, hopeful anticipation as a way to shape and sift and strengthen the faith of those who trust him. So in this season of Advent, some of you are in a season of waiting, of anticipation, of hopes. There's so much. Like, Lord, I just I want you to do this. I need you to do this. Like, I need you to rescue me from this. Don't shy away from that as a lack of faith. Lean into that as hopeful anticipation of the God who is always going to show up and deliver on what he's promised. He's not going to be late. He's not going to be late. He's on time. He does exactly what he's supposed to do when he does it because he's not us. That's so freeing. Like church, that is so freeing, right? So that's really important here. And Matthew's making that point. He's excited about it. More excited than me, I think, when he, when he said that, right? He's very excited that the promise is here. Now he hyperlinks us, right? He hyper, hyperlinks us all over the place. We'll, we'll work on one. He hyperlinks us back to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, when he says, the virgin will conceive and you will call his name Emmanuel. Now, don't have time to unpack it in full, but the context of that happening in Isaiah, they're about to go into exile because of a bunch of goofy kings. And there's one particular goofy king called King Ahaz, and he sucks. Yeah, he sucks in every way. And he's just like the worst king, okay? He's terrible. He repeatedly refuses God's invitation to repent and trust God. But it sounds so pious the way that he does it. So in the story, when you read King Ahaz's life, you're like, oh, that's kind of cute. Like he's actually, oh, he's really waiting on the Lord. And it's like, no, he's being disobedient. He's playing footsies with the Lord because he doesn't want to actually trust him, right? So King Ahaz, terrible at that. So what happens? Well, God shows up and says, well, you're not going to do it and trust me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it myself. I love that. Like, I love that God. You know what I'm saying? Like, like that, that's an amazing God. Like, it's just like, oh, no, you can't do it. You're not going to do it, so I'm going to step in and do it. And that's exactly what he does. So he says, the human kings are going to fail you, so the divine king is going to step in one day. And that's the promise there. That's going to be God with us, Emmanuel. I'm going to do it myself. I'm not going to send any of your relatives. Although Hezekiah, who comes after Ahaz, Hezekiah was legit. Hezekiah was a great king. But not the Messiah. Not God as king. Still a, a flawed, fallen king. And so in that passage in Isaiah 7, he promises, not to David, not to Ahaz, but to the house of David, that there will come a king who will truly, fully, and wholly be God with us. And Matthew's pulling that forward. And he's saying 700 years later, he's here. He's here. John does something similar at the beginning of his gospel. In John 1 Verse 14, when he says that the word of God, God, the power of God became flesh and tabernacled among us, right? So the key word is tabernacle. So all those diagrams that you ignored in Sunday school growing up of the tabernacle, yeah. you're like, I don't know, I guess it's significant. It's very significant because the whole point is that John is saying that, that God himself, his glory was made available and accessible in the temple but now he's making himself accessible in a human image bearer. And the word incarnation means in flesh, like put flesh on, put skin on. And if you remember the history of the temple, the first temple was amazing, beautiful. And what happened to bless the temple? Well, the Shekinah glory, the dwelling glory of God came down and dwelt in the temple, right? The second temple was built after the first temple was destroyed. And guess what never returned to the second temple? The glory. Shekinah glory never returned to the second temple. And God intentionally does that because he's saying, no, 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 I'm gonna arrive and say, my body is the temple and I am the glory of God. That's why we don't need a temple. 
Because the glory of God, the very presence of God isn't housed in in bricks and mortar and things built by human hands, but that he is actually gonna come to us as one of us. And then what happens? Well, Jesus dies and, and, and resurrects and ascends and he sends the spirit and fills a new temple. Who is that? Us. Jew and Gentile, the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, that we are the temple. So praise God, we don't need a geographical temple. We don't need a place with bricks and mortar because we are infilled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The very glory of God is accessible to you and me. Wow. Now it puts the temple in a different light, doesn't it? But that's John's point. Jesus shows up on the scene and offends all of the Jews because they're still waiting for the Shekinah glory to return to the temple. And Jesus shows up and he says, knock this thing down and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they're like, what? It took us hundreds of years to build this thing. And he's like, no, you're missing it. It's me. I'm the temple. And then I'm gonna make you the temple. So why does Matthew do all this? Well, He's trying to get us to understand that the Christmas story didn't start in a barn with the birth of Jesus, but that the Christmas story started in a garden with a promise to save. And so spend some time this week in Genesis 1 through 3. Sit in the discomfort of the brokenness of our origins and sit there and be like, who's going to fix this? How is this going to get fixed? How is this brokenness going to be mended? How are these relationships going to be healed? How is the disobedience and rebellion gonna be answered? How are we gonna be forgiven? Sit in that, because it's that same tension and brokenness and dysfunction and disorder of Genesis one through three that continues across. If there's anything that human history shows us is that that kind of disorder and decreation of everything that God has called good, that you and I are good at doing that. That that's what we do. And Genesis one through three, if you notice, I mean, we've done weird stuff with Genesis. I'm not going to give you examples because we're running out of time. But we've done weird stuff with Genesis. But if you remember Genesis 1 through 3, in the beginning, what? God. The whole story is about him. The entire thing. It's not about, oh, but how, how old is the earth? How young is the earth? How many days was it? Was it days? Where was the sun on day four? I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. Right? So we do all that. We skip over the fact that Genesis is about God. In the beginning, before you and I had a beginning, God. That God spoke, that God moved, that God declared life to be life. And then he actually was the one who spoke and his word gave life. And that he's knowable through his word because it's in him that we have life. And there's a poetic flow, a beautiful flow to Genesis. And what he does throughout the days of creation is he sets a context. So he builds a stage on day one, two, and three, he builds a stage. Nothing actually happens on those days. No creative moments even happen. He builds a stage, and then in day four, five, and six, he fills those stages with things. And he assigns function and order and beauty and tells everything where it belongs. And then he rests. And then he turns to human beings and says, come, come and rest in me. Come and play. Come and be fruitful and multiply. Come and eat. Come and enjoy. Come and party. Come and be free. That's a good God. Like, I love that God. Like, I can worship that God, amen? The buffet table is open. You can come and just enjoy anything you want because we have a generous God. He's not stingy. He's not angry. He's not judgmental. He's a just, perfect, righteous judge who loves his image bearers. That's the point of Genesis. And then he makes humankind. This is important. Let us create humankind. Now, what's really cool in the Genesis story is that there's a key difference between all the other things that happen. So if you notice the flow, it's let the earth bring forth, blah, blah, blah. Let the waters bring forth, blah, 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 right? But in creation of man and woman, it's let us bring forth. Let us create humanity in our image and make them male and female. Let us have this unique creative act. There's going to be something that separates this next moment of creation from everything else that was because this thing, this creative moment, there's going to be something that reflects us. God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, triune, in love, community of love, the Godhead is saying we're going to do something unique as a creative act. I'm going to give a special role, a special function to human beings that sets them apart from everything else and it comes directly from God. And he sets our identity before he tells us anything of what we should do and shouldn't do. 
And the word there is an image, right? Image bearer, a likeness, a little mirror. And back to the king language in the ancient Near East, idols and kings were called image bearers. Kings were called image bearers of God. They were physical representations of God. That's what God's doing here. He's like, everything is my temple. The whole cosmos is my temple. And I'm gonna put my image bearers in the temple to represent me to the world. That's what Genesis is doing. One commentator sums it up well. I'll read this for you, it's helpful. Idols were placed in a temple, the place where gods and humans connected. The idol then functioned as a reflection of that God to people. It was not thought of as the actual deity. Rather, it was meant to be an image of the divine. The idol stood there as the mediating representation of the God's power and presence. The image of God was also a title reserved for kings. These special chosen rulers were representations of the gods, ruling and reigning on their behalf. That's pretty significant when you think about what the image-bearing quality of God looks like. To be God's image-bearers is to be given a unique role and responsibility to reflect what God is like to the world by caring and ruling over creation. And don't think ruling over as coercive, but think ruling over as responsible for the flourishing of it. That's your vocation and mine as human beings. It's not a religious concept. It's who you are. That's your vocation. That is your job description. And as we know, sin enters the picture and gives us a different job description, right? Whereas we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy all that God's given us, we end up exploiting and abusing everything God has given us for our own gain. And the tragic exchange and shift in the, in the garden is that rather than be made to reflect God and be fruitful and enjoy all that he's given us, we instead build an image off of other things that are not God and it crushes us. And instead of reflecting God, we reflect created things. We don't steward and use what he gave us, we exploit it. And ultimately it leads to slavery, sin, and death, and it just ends up using us. So we live for things that are not God, hoping that they will deliver to us what only God can, and ultimately it always only crushes us, disappoints us, leads us to slavery and sin and death. So the core problem that comes out of the garden that Matthew is showing us that the incarnation speaks to is that there's, some, there's a nagging thing in you and I that we do believe somewhere that we will make a better God than God. And that freedom from God is actually true freedom. That we can do a better job at, well, here's, no, I know, I know like that's what you've said, but I'm gonna, I don't know, I'm gonna do this instead. I'm gonna live for this, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go after this, I'm gonna live here, I'm gonna get this job, I'm gonna do this with my family. I'm gonna, like I'm, I'm a better manager of these resources, God. And again, no one would say that because it's foolish. But your heart does it because we're fools. And that's what the garden shows us. That we place our hope in things not God, thinking that they are actually gonna give us hope. But as the story goes, instead of give up on the image bearers, God pursues those image bearers. He promises to those image bearers. He rescues those image bearers. And that's why in the story in the garden, doesn't end with rebellion and disappointment. It ends with promise. It ends with redemption. In Genesis 3.15, theologians call this the first gospel, first time the gospel is preached. In 3.15, God says, I will put strife between the offspring of the serpent, all who follow the serpent, and the offspring of the woman, and he will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. Speaking of an offspring that is gonna come of the woman who is ultimately going to crush the head of the serpent. That that's the first gospel that God is not just gonna leave this and let it run to its end. He's gonna do something about it. That there's going to be someone who comes who's gonna be God with us, who's going to be able to do what we cannot do. That's the first gospel preached. A promise of rescue, a promise to save, a promise to redeem, a promise to speak to, to misplaced hopes and to deliver. The beautiful thing about Genesis is that as quick as sin and brokenness enters the picture, God speaks a word of hope and promise. I think I did this a couple years ago, but the Jesus Storybook Bible, which we have for our kids, sometimes just the way that you get at kids just gets to you, you know? Listen to how the Jesus Storybook Bible puts this. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do... 
I'm gonna do battle against the serpent. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come. I love it. That, that's the last thing that God says to image bearers as we walk into a life of brokenness and sin. Amazing that that's our starting place. Shadows of hope leading us all the way across the Old Testament to Matthew. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham was on his way to save. Amen? So this Advent, this promise of hope, how do we sit in this? Well, I wanna invite us to sit in the slowing down and the stopping of things and actually allow ourselves to sit in the tension of this promise that the Savior for us has come and is coming. So now we're back in another tension of hope and promise, aren't we? That we still are waiting for the culmination of what God had already started in our lives and on this side of history. But he's invited us into this true story, the tension of what has been accomplished and the hopeful anticipation for God to finish what he has ultimately started. Here's how I want us to apply it this morning before we reflect and sing and pray and meditate a bit on this. You right now have an object of hope and something that you look to that you trust to make your life better. So, so whatever it is, like you, you have something, there's an object of hope that you look to to save you, to rescue you, to upgrade you, to, to free you from whatever you need freedom from. All of us do. It's not a religious question at all. It's an existential question for us as humans because hope must have an object or else it's not hope. That there's something you're pinning your hope on and saying, I just hope that life, fill in the blank. If only, fill in the blank. We've all got that hiding in here somewhere. That we hope in something. We place our hope in things or situations or seasons of life or accomplishments that will satisfy us or free us from insecurity and ultimately deliver us to a life of success. What are those things? It can be, usually it's good things, actually. Like, often it's good things. It's not bad things, but like it's career, it's, it's, it's you know, raising my standard of living, or it's like the Decepticon Omicron not getting us, you know, like coronavirus ending, uh, things getting better just generally. It's like, here's the ways that my life is not great. I just want things to get better. Loved ones recovering, God healing our loved ones, my startup taking off, uh, me meeting the one by 28 and getting married and having kids that turn out okay and not be a disaster and like whatever it is, retirement, going well, like, like it could be anything, but, but there's always something, listen, you gotta understand, always something showing up to offer you a place to put your hope, always. Not even bad things. And that's what makes them so insidious because they're not even bad things. Because if it's bad things, you'll be like, ugh, no. But these are good things. It's like, that sounds good. I can do that. But are they misplaced hopes? Have we been putting our hope in things and on things and, and into the some things and the some ones that ultimately disappoint? I think today in the West, in our Western culture, planning has replaced hoping. And so we don't pay a lot of attention to hope in our heart, like where, where it like gets into our nervous system. We've traded like future hope for present control. And we've exchanged like the reality of my life and how much is out of my control for strategy and, and goals and planning and my schedule and replaced like future hope with immediate gratification because we don't like waiting. So to think about like my life and growth over long obedience in the same direction to Jesus, it's like, yeah, but why am I not like an amazing prayer warrior now? Planning is trying to get control of our future, whereas hoping is about surrendering control of our future. Hoping is about surrendering our lives, including our future, to God, not based on probability or just throwing it out there, but based on promise. That's the point of Advent. That our rightly placed hope is not in probability that maybe God will pull it off. It's in his track record of he always pulls it off. It's in his track record that's perfect. 
and his promises that are yet to be fulfilled. And it's in our present tension of waiting and anticipation that we can say, I'll plan, but I'll plan lightly because my hope is in you. I should plan. I'm not telling you to be unorganized and not plan because some of you are already like, but I have really good New Year's resolutions, right? I'm not telling you to get rid of those. I'm saying that even those plans need to be held lightly and drawn in chalk because ultimately our hope is gonna be in what God is doing based on what he has done and what he has not yet finished. That's Advent. That's this Christmas season. And I don't know what it is for you. I'd love to be able to like prophetically speak into your heart and like look you creepily in your eyes right now and do that. But I, I don't know what it is for you. But you do. If you take the time to listen, to slow down in this season of your life, again, we look, at, look across the room. We're in very different seasons of life right now. We got different things going on. But there's those things fighting for misplaced hope in your heart right now. There's disappointments this year that you haven't gone back because they're too painful. And you need to go back there. You need to go back down the road and figure out where the misplaced hope was. Because there's joy in figuring that out. Because then we get to put our hope back in to the only one who can deliver. This is an invitation to us this time of year. To abandon false hopes. Objects of hope that ultimately can't anchor us in storms and hardship. And in our most honest moments, when our head hits the pillow at night, we're left with the humbling, sober reality that often the things that we put our hope in let us down. That that's actually a good thing. That's an invitation. I'll give you a couple of examples in the Psalms, and then we'll apply it and, and, and pray. Psalm, 40 times throughout Psalms, there's this amazing like refrain of hope. But in Psalm 40, uh, no, 39, verse 7, listen. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? Why am I waiting? Watch this. My hope is in you. So what am I doing waiting? My hope is in you. Like, your track record is perfect. I got to remember, like, what you have done so that I understand that in this time of waiting, my hope is actually in you. Psalm 130, verse 5. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. More than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Just repeats it, because he's like, I don't think you heard me. I think it was a Pentecostal preacher who wrote Psalm 130. Come on, somebody, right? That was the equivalent of come on, somebody. But this is not wishful thinking, amen? This is not optimism that maybe things will work out somehow. This hope is a deep, decided, personal hope in the God who is trustworthy. It's not hope based on probability. It's based on promise. Misplaced hopes are built on probability. Maybe this works out. I hope my investments work out. I hope my kids turn out okay. I hope I get that promotion. I hope we get that house. I hope those are probabilities. Not this. Not this hope. It's God's past faithfulness that gives us hope for the present and energizes us for the future. So this season, Christian hope as followers of Jesus looks back to what Christ has already done and looks forward to the grand finale, the renewal of all things, where the new garden, new tree of life, heaven and earth will meet and there will be no more misplaced hopes, no more disappointments, no more brokenness, no more pain. Then we get to look forward to that, but in the moment, in the present, we sit and wait with hopeful anticipation. Eugene Peterson said this, hope is a response to the future, which has its foundation in the promises of God. It is a grace that's cultivated in the present. It is a stance in the present which deals with the future. Christian hope alerts us to the possibilities of the future as a field of action and as a consequence fills the present with energy. That's what Advent is inviting us into. That's what we're reminded of at this time of the year, that God is the author of hope because he always has been. And rather than kind of just move into like, okay, how do we reflect on this? I just want us to take a minute. I'm gonna have our benediction be from Romans 15 before we sing and before I pray. But some of you haven't paid much enough attention to God's track record and that's why you're struggling to put your hope in him now. But just like Israel, followers of Jesus today look back to the empty tomb as evidence that God is still redeeming all things. And we get to look back so that we can look forward. 
And this true hope that we're invited into is saying, regardless of how my plans work out, I trust you because you're good. That you're doing this for your glory and for my good. And I put my hope in you because of that. Romans 15, 13. It says, may the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in trusting so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in, say it together, hope. He's not just a God who delivers hope. He's the God of hope. And it's in him that we have hope and we, he abounds, that we can abound in this hope. So as we respond, as we pray, as we sing, where have you put your hopes this year? What are some of the things that you're hoping for in this Advent season or at the end of this year? What are you looking to for hope for next year? And what are the ways that we can turn away from those things, not put our, our, our hope in those, those places or those situations or those seasons and turn back to the God of hope who promises that we may abound in that because it belongs to him. Let me pray for us to that end. God, there's so many things that that sneak in to disappoint, to let us down, to frustrate us. So many things this year that we can look back at that, and grieve. This has been a year of grief for many of us. I speak, I speak for us as a church family. Many of us have grieved different things this year. Tough things. But Lord, you don't just call us to look away from those things and ignore those things, but that you, you in, invite us to go back and revisit those things so that we would find our hope in you. And I just pray that over the next several weeks as we reflect, as we slow down, as we sit in the hopeful anticipation of what you have yet to do, that it would be rooted in what you have already done. That you already call us adopted. You already call us daughter. You already call us son. And we don't work for that identity, we work from it because of the work that you have accomplished for us, Jesus. And so we rest in that. We ask that you would fill us so that we would abound in hope and that it would be done for your name, for your fame, for your glory and our good. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen.